If you got a Bible, let's go to uh, Daniel chapter uh, 11. And again, plan on finishing this up uh, next uh, week. And we've got a lot to cover today. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is probably one of these passages of Scripture that unless you were preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, you're never just going to choose to preach uh, on its own. Uh, but it's really an amazing passage of Scripture. You know, as Missy uh, was reading, and really I should probably have Missy up here reading the Scripture. I think that's her gift. But uh, as Missy was reading from First Peter, uh, it, it just it reminded you know the phrase in there about you know these things that were I remember the exact word predicted prophesied beforehand about uh, the sufferings and the the glories of Christ. You know we've seen that in the book of Daniel. I thought about Daniel chapter nine and in Daniel chapter eleven we're going to see some really amazing things that were prophesied in the future. Now, I want to start with something light before we uh, get into all of that. So, um, for those of you that are watching online, we're glad. And uh, we, we appreciate uh, you know, feedback that we get from those of you that are watching online. And so I got a text last Sunday afternoon that had uh, like a caption and a picture. And, and, and the caption said, uh, Beasley really enjoyed the sermon, and then this was the picture. <laughs> so, just wanted to know, we're reaching the cat demographic, that uh, cats clearly enjoy my preaching. They're reprobate and can't be saved, but, uh, you know, they still like hearing me preach. <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. Okay, see, there we go, the cat demographic, it's growing. <laughs> All right, so uh, James Boyce has said about the 11th chapter of Daniel that even though the 11th chapter is difficult, it calls for a detailed explanation. Why? Because this is the last, longest, most detailed, and therefore most important prophecy in the book. To the best of my knowledge, this is the longest, most detailed prophecy in the entire Bible. And, and so there's a lot here to unpack. Let me just kind of review just a couple things quickly, and then we're just kind of going to uh, dive into it. And really what we're going to do is kind of walk through these verses, read them, and we'll point out some of the fulfillments of the prophecy to you. And, and then like we have throughout this series, just uh, you know, try to apply it to our lives. We're going to talk about the Christ connections, a conviction, and, and then an action uh, to take out of that. But remember, Daniel was written around 530 B.C., and we've talked about the fact that that's debated, but I've given you about six or seven reasons to believe that it was actually written in that time frame, which would mean he's writing these things hundreds of years before they actually came uh, to pass. The second thing I would remind us of is uh, what uh, John Aiken calls the big E on the I chart. We talked about this earlier, but really this is building on the previous prophecies of chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, uh, the, the end of chapter 9. But you remember the, the story of Daniel, ultimately the point of Daniel, God's sovereign, he's in control, he's bringing about his will in the world, Jesus reigns as, as Lord, and he uh, illustrates this by the fact that he says there's these series of kingdoms. There's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, and Rome, and then at the, the end, some revived form of the Roman Empire headed by the Antichrist, who's talked about directly and pictured and typified in, in the book of Daniel. But ultimately, all these 
kingdoms of man are going to pass away and only the kingdom of God is going to last uh, forever. And, and, and that's the point of Daniel chapter 11. It's kind of building on what he said earlier, somewhat reviewing what he said earlier and then adding in some additional detail to what he said earlier. And then one last uh, review statement, and then we'll just jump into the text. If you remember last week, uh, if you've heard last week, I said that uh, chapters 10 through 12 are a unit. And, and we looked at chapter 10, the kind of the behind the scenes last week in the spiritual realm and how God was working in the spiritual realm. We talked about how he's working in the spiritual realm, and it's through that that he actually brings about his will in, in, in the physical realm. And so last week we saw uh, the spiritual realm. Uh, this week we're going to see the tangible fulfillment of it, so to speak, the working out uh, of it in the actual physical realm, in the actual material world. And then next week in chapter 12, we'll see how that uh, carries into eternity. But here's a very specific example of that. If you look at verse 1, and really, verse 1, you know, the, the chapter and verse divisions aren't inspired. That was added in later for us. Really, verse 1 actually belongs to the end of chapter 10. And it says, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And this is the angel uh, talking about, uh, the, just, uh, you know, the angel is talking to Daniel, talking about how he, you know, he worked. Remember, we've talked about how Darius the Mede was also Cyrus the Persian, uh, same person, two different titles. Well, Isaiah 44, 28 says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And so uh, Cyrus, Darius, was God's instrument to do what in the first year of his reign? Let the people go back uh, to their land. Remember the end of the 70 years. And so apparently there's some kind of spiritual battle going on in the background, but God uses this pagan ruler to accomplish his will to send uh, his people back as he prophesied uh, would happen. And so that's encouraging to me as you look at things that are going on in the world. You think about governments. You think about rulers. God is working in the background, and God is working to bring about his will. And somebody doesn't have to be a Christian for them to be the instrument of God and his will being worked out in the world. Now, just kind of pick up from there. And verses 2 through 4 are going to be somewhat review. We've already talked about this, maybe a little more detail. And then starting in verse 5 through 20, he's going to kind of give us some new detail here. But verse 2 says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer uh, than them all. Uh, by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against all the realm of Greece. So how was this fulfilled in history? Well, these kings were Cambyses II, 530 to 522, Guamada, the, the, sometimes called the magician, 522, Darius the Great, 522 to 486, and then Xerxes, 
486 to 465. If you've ever seen the movie The 300, you remember Xerxes from there. Now, that movie is historical fiction, uh, but it's based on actual historical characters, historical events. So Xerxes attacked Greece, but the unified Grecian city-states defeated the Persians at the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. And so this marked uh, the beginning of the rise of the Greek Empire. Then you fast forward uh, around 150 years or so, and verse 3 says, Then a mighty king shall arise, Alexander the Great, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heavens, uh, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he, with which he ruled. For, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And so, remember we've seen and we talked about in history, and it was you know, prophesied earlier in Daniel chapter 8, uh, you know, he dies, his kingdom is split up between four rulers. Cassander takes Macedonian Greece, Lysimachus takes Thrace and portions of Asia Minor, Ptolemy took Egypt and Israel, and Seleucus took Syria and Mesopotamia. Now, that's kind of the setup then to really the rest of the chapter that's going to add to what we've already seen in Daniel. So uh, let me give a little bit of an intro to this next section. Danny Aiken puts it this way. In the grand scheme of world history, Egypt and Syria don't amount to much during this period of time from around 323 to 163 B.C. The more significant global power is Rome, the new bad boy arising in the background. However, the reason Egypt and Syria receive all the press here is because they are important in their relationship to Israel and the people of God. Remember, we've seen more than once through Daniel that the purpose of his writing is concerning God's people and the holy city, the Jews, and Jerusalem. So that's why the focus on this here. Uh, Dr. Aiken goes on to say they will play political ping pong with the nation of Israel for almost 175 years until the evil Antichrist type figure Antiochus IV Epiphanes that we've already seen, 165 and 163 BC, comes on the scene. That is the subject of verses 20 to 45. Until then, ongoing civil war takes place between Egypt and Syria, with Israel tragically caught in the middle. And then Ray, Ray Burleson writes, and this is important if you're going to understand the rest of this as I talk through it, or hopefully as you're studying on your own. And just so you'll know, in the app, you know, we usually put some, you know, an outline in there, put more detailed notes in there, so it's got a lot of these historical references and that kind of thing, if you want to refer to that. But Ray Burleson writes of this, for the rest of Daniel 11, the king of the north represents the king leading the, Seleuc the northern Seleucid people, also known as the Syrian kingdom. The king of the south refers to the king leading the southern Ptolemy people, also known as the Egyptian kingdom. So when you see king of the north, think Egypt, or, or I'm sorry, think Syria. When you see king of the south, think Egypt, and that'll make it a lot more understandable. Okay, we're tracking so far. I really don't want this to be a history lecture, okay? We're going to get to some very practical applications. But, I mean, when you, when you get this, you see just how amazing it is that God is writing things through Daniel hundreds of years before they happen, okay? So it says, verse 5, Also, the king of the south, who is 
Egypt shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she, will, uh, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who uh, begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times." And, and what this is talking about, uh, Berenice, Ptolemy's daughter, the daughter of the king of the south, according to the text, was arranged to marry Antiochus, the king of the north, to make an agreement between the two kingdoms. You know, in history, a lot of, it's very common for there to be arranged marriages for political expediency. And this is what was going on here. But the problem was that Antiochus was already married to a lady named Laodice. And she wasn't real happy about being put away, about being scorned and despised. So she, mar- she murdered Antiochus, Berenice, and their child. And so that's what these verses are talking about. It was predicted, and this is what happened in history. And then it says, but from a branch of her roots. Now, if it had said from her roots, you'd have thought children. A branch of her roots would indicate a different family member. And so her brother, Ptolemy III, uh, who was called Ergetes, which means the benefactor, uh, a branch of her roots, and that's who it ended up being, uh, shall arise in his place. You shall come with an army, uh, enter the fortress of the king of the north, who, which is Syria, and deal with them and prevail. So he attacked Syria to avenge his sister's murder. I mean, this is what happened in, in history. And he also shall also carry the, their gods captive to Egypt. He, he took back uh, their you know, idols and statues and whatnot that Xerxes had taken earlier uh, with their princes and their pre- pre- precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of uh, the north. He outlived him, which happened in history. But like I said, his name... Well, Ugertes means benefactor, and he was called this because of returning their gods and getting all this gold and silver for them. You see the specificity of of the prophecies uh, here. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So, the, the Syrian king, Seleucid II, tried to come and you know, invade Egypt, but history tells us that this was unsuccessful because his fleet was destroyed in a storm. And then starting in verse 10, these verses, the next 10 or so verses, detail the wars and the conflicts between Syria and Egypt. And for time's sake, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail there, but let's just read it. It says, However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in the fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. 
So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice, tro- tro- his choice troops shall have no strength to resist, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And again, I mean, you can do the research on this. You see all these things being fulfilled in history. I don't feel like I've got time to get into all the details of it. It would be here all day. I just want to give you some kind of examples of these prophecies being specifically fulfilled. Here's an example, verse 20. It says, There shall arise in his place one who opposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but notice this, but not in anger or in battle. This is Seleucid IV, and he was poisoned by his minister, Heliodorus, so he was destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. He was poisoned by one of his own associates. So, you know, this is what's going on there uh, for a long period of time. Uh, You know, Israel's kind of caught in the middle of these two kingdoms, the northern southern kingdom, Syria and Egypt fighting with one another in all these conflicts. They're kind of caught in the middle. But then verse 21 picks up, and um, you know we, we won't go into huge detail about him because we've already done that. So if you want to learn more about Antiochus Epiphanes, just go back and find the message from uh, chapter 8 on our uh, podcast or YouTube or, or, or wherever, website. But this is verses, starting verse 21, it talks about Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and, and remember, uh, you know, Epiphanes means God manifest. That's how he looked at himself. You know, the Jews called him the madman, though, uh, very quietly in whispers. Uh, and so it says, In his place shall arise a vile person, uh, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by, by intrigue. So he didn't take over by force. He, he, he took over really after, um, after Seleucus died. The next in line was like a five-year-old kid. And so he, he worked and you know, did all these things. And, and he jumped in there. He took over. And it says, With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. And this is talking about the Jewish high priest, Onias III, that Antiochus replaced uh, with a guy named Jason. But then he double-crossed Jason and he, uh, with a guy named Menelaus, who then became the high priest. That's the kind of stuff he's doing. So it says, <clears throat> verse 23, After the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. And he shall defy his plans against the the, the strongholds, but only for a time. 
He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these king hearts shall, king's hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. And so these verses are ta- talking about him by guile at times and by military force at some times, conquering some of the provinces of uh, Egypt and then ultimately part of Egypt itself. And it says in verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So what happened there was a rumor spread that he was killed. Remember Jason, who uh, was, you know, the, in working with him, and then he got double-crossed by him? He got together a thousand men, led a rebellion against him in Jerusalem. And so, uh, you know, the things we talked about in Daniel chapter 8, uh, this is what set that off, where tens of thousands of Jews he killed, others he sold into slavery, he stops their worship, he desecrates the temple. That was the spark that lit that fuse. And in verse 29 says, At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. These were Roman ships. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. So what happened here? He went to war against Egypt again. This time, though, they appealed to Rome for help. Rome said yes. That They send an envoy uh, headed by a guy named uh, Popilius, who was an ambassador, and he delivered the Roman Senate's demand that Antiochus withdraw from Egypt. Antiochus requested time to think about it, but uh, this ambassador famously took a stick that he was holding drew a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and said that you can't leave this circle until you give your answer. Uh, Antiochus is ticked off by this, but he figures it's smarter to be expedient, not tangle with Rome, so he goes along with his demand. But, you know, sometimes when you get mad, you have displaced anger, right? Right? Sometimes we ticked off at somebody at work and we come home and take it out on our spouse or children. Well, Antiochus has displaced anger. He's ticked off at Rome, but he decides to take it out on the Jews. So he comes back and verse 31 says, Forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. And and this maybe is the key verse in the whole chapter. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So in other words, he's going to come back and eliminate their religion, take away their sacrifices, 
uh, you know, the abomination of desolation. Jesus refers to this. There's a future fulfillment of the Antichrist. You know, he puts a pig on the altar. He sets up, you know, worship of his God. Uh, and, and, and he says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Some people are going to go along with this. Some people are going to be sucked into it. But people who know their God will be strong, carry out great uh, exploits. Historically, that's talking about the, the Jewish priest, Mattathias, and his five sons, including a guy named Judas Maccabees, who led a rebellion against this. Of course, we talked about in Daniel chapter 8, historically, Josephus talked about how basically, you know, God struck down Antiochus with this terrible disease. He dies this horrible, awful death. But, you know, at the same time, they're leading this rebellion. And it says, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Now, the last kind of... Um, you know how like if you, if you listen... like. You know, Jay and Lily, our son, one of our daughters, went to the Nashville Symphony last night to watch the movie Home Alone with the score being played uh, by the, I guess, some, I guess, Nashville Symphony Orchestra. Now, um, you know, I'm not very cultured. I don't know if I've ever been to the symphony. But when you listen to that kind of music, you know, like these different movements within the music. Well, now we're about to move into the last movement of uh, th- this chapter. It, it switches here. And, and, and this is where maybe in, in interpreting it, there's a little bit more question. But most evangelical Bible scholars uh, would say that verse 36, as we've seen throughout Daniel, that Antiochus Epiphanes is a type or a picture of the Antichrist. Now, verses 36 to 45 move to talking about the Antichrist. There's a jump ahead. Like in chapter 9, you've got the 69 weeks and a break, then the 70th week, that being reflected here. Now, you know, I've read a theory that some people, that's interesting that some people think this is talking about Herod the Great, you know, the Roman ruler of uh, Judea at the time of Jesus' birth, but I think it's the Antichrist. He says here, verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will, He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath, the great tribulation period, has been accomplished. For what is determined, what has been determined shall be done. Been determined by who? God. God in his sovereignty is using all of this to bring about his will. And then, He goes on, and we're going to skip these just because of time's sake. He goes on to describe the Antichrist, some things that are happening in verses 37 through 44. And then verse 45 says this. It says, And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, there's a scholar by the name of James Hamilton Jr. who points out the similarities between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist and Daniel. He says this is the pattern. 
One, at the time of the end, two, a king of exaggerated wickedness arises. Three, who attacks God's people. And four, tries to keep them from worshiping him. Five, setting up instead an abomination of desolation. Six, thereupon a horrible time of tribulation will continue for three and a half years. Seven, before the wicked king meets sudden, sudden irreversible destruction, resulting eight in deliverance for the righteous. Daniel 12, verse 1 says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars uh, forever and ever. And we'll unpack uh, chapter 12 next week. Hey, some good news. It's really short. Okay, it's more than three verses, but it's really short. Okay, but what's this talking about? Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the cloud of heaven, clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Again, what's the big E on the I chart? Uh, There's sin. There's evil in the world. There's wicked rulers. There's human kingdoms. But they're all going to pass away. Even the final personification of evil, even the final human ruler, the Antichrist, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to destroy him. He's going to establish his kingdom. He is going to rule and reign forever. Uh, this is adapted from Danny Aiken, but he, he compares uh, Jesus and the, the Christ and the Antichrist. The Antichrist is deceitful. King Jesus is truthful. The Antichrist hates the Holy Covenant. Jesus loves God's Holy Covenant. The Antichrist desecrates the temple. Remember, Jesus came and cleansed uh, the, the temple. Uh, the Antichrist, or Antiochus, you know, uh, remember he's a type, he's a picture, abolished sacrifices. King Jesus came and made a once-for-all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, the Antichrist persecutes and murders God's people. Jesus purifies God's people. The Antichrist was willful. Jesus was submissive. The Antichrist exalts himself. Jesus humbled himself. The Antichrist magnifies himself as God. Jesus is God who incarnated himself as a man. The Antichrist blasphemes God. Jesus glorifies God. The Antichrist, it says in chapter 11, verse 38, worships the God of war. Jesus is the God of peace, the Prince of Peace, who's coming to establish a kingdom of peace. The Antiochus kingdom ended. Every human despot, dictator, evil ruler, the Antichrist, their kingdom will end. Jesus' kingdom will endure forever. And so, really, the question for us is, are we living our lives according to the spirit of the Antichrist? Or the spirit of the real Christ, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who rules and reigns forever. So this is the conviction 
that I want to give us out of all of this in, in, in this chapter. And again, I, I would encourage you to read it for yourself, you know, look up some of these things and, and see how this is fulfilled. But, you know, again, as we've talked about, the world seems out of control. And Daniel chapter 11 is a pretty out of control chapter. I mean, really, it's about wars. It's about murder. It's about intrigue, uh, deception, people trying to, you know, uh, have their own kingdom and uh, people treating people, doing what, stepping on people, doing whatever they need. I mean, it make a good miniseries. I mean, it's about people doing whatever they need to do to have their own way. Remember what James wrote? You know, that's the question, where do wars come from among you? Do they come from the desire for pleasure that wars in your members? Where does all this kind of stuff come from? It comes from our own sinful nature. I mean, uh, why would we question the doctrine of original sin when we have thousands of years of human history that proves it? The world seems out of control. I mean, we think things are bad today. Things have been bad ever since the fall. The world seems out of control because of our sin and selfishness and choices that we make. But the good news is, is despite our sin, God is bringing about His will and establishing His eternal kingdom. I I mean, think about it. We, we, We read there that this is determined and so, I just kind of want to give you some applications of this, and I, and I hope this first one encourages you, it encourages me, and that is that the sinful choices of human beings and human governments do not thwart the sovereign plan of God. The sinful choices of human beings and human government do not thwart the sovereign plan of God. Listen, Whoever wins the Georgia Senate race on, I think that's Tuesday, is not going to thwart the sovereign plan of God. Whoever's in the White House does not thwart the sovereign plan of God. Whoever's in, in control of any country does not thwart the sovereign plan of God. The Bible says that God turns the heart of the king like the waters of the river in Proverbs, just like he did with Cyrus to cause him to send his people back to their land. You say, why is the Lord letting people do all of these wicked, evil things? I don't know, except it's all a part of his plan related to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. Listen, Human government is a product of the fall in two ways. It's, it's a product of the fall because the, the, you know, the point of government, when it's working right, is, is to restrain evildoers and protect law-abiding citizens. That's the ultimate purpose of government, according to Scripture. So God is using government in that way. Do you understand? Every government currently and in history and in the future, is led by fallen, flawed, sinful, fallible people. So do not expect government to be your savior. I mean, governments, I mean, listen, we should expect this kind of stuff that we read in Daniel chapter 11 from human governments. And if it's better than that, praise God. 
And listen, our founding fathers understood this. They believed in original sin. Why do we have three branches of government? It's a check and balance against dictators. That's the point of it. And see, the ultimate idea, of and listen, I'm not downplaying the importance of government, voting, all those. It's, it's, It's very, very important. But it's not a savior. Our Savior is coming someday, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace who has the government upon his shoulders and who is going to establish his kingdom forever. That's the only time government's going to be perfect on the earth. So don't put your hope in government, but don't despair if it's not going like you think it's supposed to go because, again, the sinful choices of human beings and human governments do not thwart the sovereign plan of God. Hey, you know what? Something else is good news about that is my stupid sinful choices have not thwarted the sovereign plan of God either. He's greater than all that. That's really good news. Because if it all depends on how smart I am to figure it all out, me and some other people are probably in trouble. His grace is greater than all of their sin. Second, I think we see from this that we can base our lives on Scripture because these fulfilled prophecies demonstrate that it is the Word of God. We can base our lives on Scripture because these fulfilled prophecies demonstrate that it is the Word of God. Listen, I mean, there's other reasons to believe the Bible is the Word of God. But I mean, when you just... Read the book of Daniel in one hand and history books in the other hand. How do you deny that the Holy Spirit inspired this? I mean, when things, multiple things, thing after thing, are being written and then they're being fulfilled hundreds of years later in detail, is that not the hand of God? And listen, one of the the fundamental questions of life that we have to decide is what's our authority? What are we basing, what we believe, how we think, how we live on? And, and I would say, if, if that's true, if these prophecies were fulfilled, this is the Word of God, base your life on it. Don't just give lip service to it. And if you're not sure, dig into it. Study it for yourself. Make a decision uh, about it. Listen, I would challenge you, if, if you can't refute Even the book of Daniel, like I said, there's other reasons to believe it. Accept it as the word of God. Surrender to Jesus Christ. Follow him. Listen, you may not have every question answered. You're never going to have every question answered. I don't have every question answered. And, and, you know, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. and, And I've been studying the Bible extensively for over 30 years now. I don't have every question answered. You know what? This is something we'll talk about next week when we get to chapter 12. Daniel didn't have every question answered. I mean, he had angelic visions, and God, and, and he, he saw, you know, Jesus, and God enabled him to interpret uh, dreams, and not just interpret it, name dreams. But you see multiple times in the book, he's confused, he's overwhelmed. Listen, you don't have to answer every question to stand on what you know, to stand on what's true. Number three, we can face the future with confidence because God is sovereign and powerful enough to bring about his will. Listen, how can God predict the future? It's because he's actually bringing it about. 
I've told you a story before of one time when I was a kid, teenager, I won a bet with one of my cousins that I could predict the score of a basketball game because I'd already actually seen the game and, it, you know, this, it was like coming on as a replay. Or I hadn't seen the game, I'd seen, the, seen it on Center. But, you know, I had seen something that already happened. That's different than something that hasn't happened yet saying it's going to happen. We can't bring that about with any certainty, but God can because he stands outside of time and space. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He's sovereign. He can write the future because he's the one who's creating the future. And so we can face the future with confidence, knowing that our God is on his throne, that he's sovereign, that he rules, that he reigns, that Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead, and that nothing that we do or anybody else does can thwart the sovereign plan of God. I love this quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it relates to what I said about you don't have to be certain about everything to be certain about some things. The Christian is a man who can be certain about the ultimate even when he is most uncertain about the immediate. Listen, we know the outcome. We may not know what it's all going to look like getting there, but we know that Jesus is one. He wins in the end. We can count on that. Four, we will experience trials and persecution, but God will use them for our spiritual growth. Look at verse 35 again. He says, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and really that's probably talking about martyrdom there, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. Why is God letting some of this stuff happen? I don't know, but I know that if we're uh, in him, he's using it all for our good to make us more like Jesus, to purify us, to sanctify us, to, to change us. He has a purpose in our trials. And, and that's why James 1, 2 and 3 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Does that mean I'm happy about trials all the time? No. But what is the point is, if we know that God has a purpose, it's just not random. It helps us to rejoice in Him, even during the midst of trials. Listen, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. To the point of this, um, this wasn't originally my notes, but just in my uh, Bible reading a couple days ago, I noticed this in Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. In other words, the martyrs are crying out for justice. I want you to notice verse 11. It says, and a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. That would say to me that God is so sovereign that there are apparently a number of people numbered who are to be martyred for their faith, which sounds awful on the earth, but I'm assuming it's going to be awesome for them in heaven. That's how sovereign God is. Even that's numbered. So, to close, if this is the conviction, what's the action? And I think it's this. We will stand firm in Christ 
know God, and do great things for God. Look at verse 32 again. I think it's the key verse in all of this. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. In other words, some people are going to be flattered, deceived. Some people are going to go along to get along. Some people aren't going to stand, but other people are going to stand. And the people who know their God, they're going to stand, and they're going to do great things, and God is going to use them. And and listen, the point of this is that, yeah, the world seems out of control and things are bad, but God's sovereign and God's working out his plan, but we're responsible. And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're, we're called to stand firm in him, get to know him better and better. And as Christ lives through us to serve him, to do the will of God, to be used by him to make a difference in the world. We'll talk about this more next week in chapter 12. It's really practical. But again, the point of all of this is not to run and hide in their little bomb shelter, filling out our prophetic charts and calendars while the world goes to hell around us. It's to make a difference, to stand firm, stand strong. Okay? I want to show you something I think illustrates this. Don't, Don't turn it on yet, but it's kind of a crazy thing, but... You got some college football fans here? Okay, be nice to each other today. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, I think, among <laughs> college football fans after this weekend. But uh, so, not yesterday, but the week before, uh, Texas A&M and LSU uh, played each other. Just l- look at this video clip. for. Now, let's be honest, doesn't that dude look like a goofball right there? <laughs> but, I mean, I got a lot of respect for him. I mean, he's like, he, I mean, it's just a football game, but he may, he may look goofy, but he, I mean, he's standing, right? He's, he's for his team. He's not ashamed. He's standing in, in the middle of their home crowd. And what's the point of that? Listen, in, in the world today, if we stand for Christ, we're going to look goofy and weird and, and, and out of place, and people are going to laugh at us, and people are going to make fun of us, but does it really matter? If we really believe this, If we really believe that God is sovereign, that he's working out his plan, that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus rose from the dead, that God's sovereign, that God's on his throne, will we stand? How do we stand? We stand by knowing God in salvation through Jesus. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, there's going to be some people who, who say, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these great things for you? But I'm going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Do you truly know God through Jesus Christ? Jesus is the only way to God. Know God in salvation too. Get to know God better and better every day. How do we do that? John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Abiding in Christ, staying close to him, means spending time with him, praying, being in his word, worshiping him, confessing sins, looking to him, trying to fix our eyes uh, on him. 
And then, but the last phrase of that says, if we abide in him, um, he says, without me you can do nothing, but if we abide in him, we're going to bear much fruit. The idea is because we know God, we will be used by God to do great things for him because it's Christ living through us. It's us loving people. It's us praying. It's us using our gifts to serve him. It's us sharing our faith with others. I mean, he specifically referenced that in chapter 12, verse 3. It's us standing up. It's God using us to make a difference. So my question is, in the middle of an out-of-control world, are we going to stand strong, stand firm in Christ, pay the price to be used by God? Are we just going to go along to get along, be a fair-weather fan, do what's easy? Or are we going to stand firm, not be deceived, stand on the Word of God, Know God, spend time with God, be strengthened by God, and then live obediently to Him so that He uses us to make a difference in the world. Listen, we can make excuses, we can make a difference, but we can't do both. Which one are we going to do? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.